Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Anna Fabrega. Anna is a comedian, actor, and writer. She worked on The Chris Gethard Show. She had great parts on High Maintenance and on At Home with Amy Sedaris. But she's probably best known as a star and co-creator of one of my all-time favorite television programs, Los Espookies. I'm not a horror guy. Slasher movies, too gory for me. Ghost movies, too creepy for me. Jump scares, no thank you very much. But Los Spookies is not really a horror show. It's a show about four weirdos who love horror. They run a company where they go around town bringing scenes from horror movies to real life. Or, I guess, the kind of stuff you would see in horror movies. Demonic possessions, sea monsters, creepy aliens, that kind of thing. It's not scary, though. It is sweet and goofy and a little bit surreal. It's about friendship and identity and carving a place in the world for yourself. It just nabbed a Peabody Award for its brilliant second season. A Peabody, well-earned. To celebrate, we are replaying my interview with Anna Fabrega from last year. Let's get into it. Anna Fabrega, welcome to Bullseye. I am so, so happy to have you on the show. I'm such a fan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You're from Scottsdale, Arizona. I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah. Um, what did you think of Scottsdale, Arizona when you were a kid? Um, we moved there when I was in first grade, like in the middle of the school year. Um, we had been in Iowa before that. And so, you know, aesthetically, very different from Iowa. Um, I, you know, in my teenage years, I felt just kind of like bored. And there's not a ton to do there. I mean, I think most places when you're a teenager, you only have so many options. But I definitely knew I wanted to leave. So when I was, you know, 18 or, I mean, 17, and I was senior in high school and was applying to schools, I was like, I want to go to New York. Um, but when I started going back, once I moved to New York, I started to appreciate the uh, the desert landscape much more. I took it for granted uh, growing up that it's really beautiful. I read you describing somewhere feeling like you didn't realize the extent to which you didn't fit in when you were an adolescent until you were in New York and had perspective on your adolescence. Like you didn't have an unhappy childhood. It was just you were like, oh, wow, there's all this possibility. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, by no means was I like, um, you know, unhappy or anything. Like I had my friends. I was like, you know, the type of kid in school who was like, I wasn't like the popular kid, but I was friends with everyone. So it's like the popular kids liked me, but I wasn't hanging out with them. You know, I was like, you know, very much had like my small group of close friends. Um, and we had shared interests and, you know, would would bond over similar things. Um, and then going to New York, like the first four years that I was here when I was in school, I didn't find people that I felt like I had, you know, 
things I could connect with or felt like we had similar, you know, sense of humor or interest or anything. So then I just kind of went like full, like, I don't know, like sort of reclusive. And like my my sister was living in New York at the time. So I would just hang out with her and her friends and then just like treat school as like put my head down, do go to class, go to work, go home, do my homework. Like I wasn't very social uh, in college. And then when I graduated, a year after I graduated and I started doing stand up is when I was like, oh, here's where my people are. Here are where like the people that uh, I do sort of feel like I belong with are and then found my like community that I, that I didn't ever really find when I was in college after college. What was it that didn't feel like it was a fit with the other kids when you were in college? Just like, you know, when you make a joke and someone just goes like, you're so weird. Just like that feeling of like, oh, like you don't you don't want to like joke back. You just think that it's like absurd that somebody would say this. You know what I mean? It was that sort of feeling. I mean, look, I'm going to play a clip from the Chris Cathard show for which you wrote. Um, and I like, I just don't think I can describe how particular your work is without playing a little bit of it. And, you know, the videos you make for social, for social media maybe are, are, uh, a little short and visual, but there's enough words in this. And, and basically this is you after a writer's meeting, convincing Chris and uh, the show's head writer or director that you're that you have some ideas that they need to hear, and are the <laughs> initially they're going to be all ideas about scorpions, <laughs> and there's a picture of a scorpion on your binder of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that we hear I don't remember if there's scorpion jokes in there but let's listen to the clip so um, the first idea really simple uh, I'm walking down the street there's a sign that says wet paint and I walk up to it I touch it if it's dry I remove the sign yeah and if it's wet I leave it okay uh, there's one where I'm playing baseball uh, I'm up to bat, and as the ball comes, I drop the bat and I punch the ball, and then I run. So it's like, I mean, the backstory could be that I used to be a boxer. Or we could do it where instead when the ball comes, instead of dropping the bat, I turn around and I hit the ball so it keeps going that way. Can you do that? I mean, we could try. <laughs> so, I. Uh... You can see how this in little moments can play on social media, especially to people who signed up for it. How did it play when you started doing stand-up open mics? So I like, you know, had been making videos and I didn't know what it would look like to try to sort of take what I like doing online and do it live. And so the first few times I went to open mics, I was like, well, stand-up is like a setup and a punchline and you tell a story. And so I had sort of like, the line that I thought was funny, and then I would write, like, context around it so that it would be, like, a little story the way I thought stand-up had to be. And I did that a few times, and I was like, this doesn't feel right. Like, what if I tried to just say the line that's funny to me? And then I did that, and I felt like, oh, okay, this is, I think, the way that, you know, I should approach it, that, like, I don't need to try to make this look like what I think stand-up has to be. And a big part of sort of that moment of like, oh, I can do anything was like starting to go to 
mics that were like from other people that had more similar sensibilities and kind of seeing like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, stand up is solo comedic performance and you can interpret it however you want and do anything you want within it. And the type of like, you know, specials on Comedy Central that I saw growing up is like one way to do this, but it's not the only way. Um, and so then, yeah, I, start, I, I like, you know, I think the first few years I was doing stand up was kind of trying to figure out like, what does like, how do I take the thing that I think is funny um, and like present that in a live format? Much more to get into with Anna Fabrega in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Anna Fabrega. She's the co-creator of the HBO show Los Espookies. They just won a Peabody for their second season. Anna is also a comedian, actor, and writer. She's worked on History of the World Part Two, High Maintenance, and The Chris Gethard Show. Let's get back into our conversation. What was the first thing that you did on stage that really worked that you feel like still kind of represents you? Um, I mean, I, I remember the first mic, open mic I went to where I was like, I'm going to try to just say the lines that are funny to me. Um, it was So I had been going to an open mic that was at UCB because I didn't know where else to go. The Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. Yeah, there were open mics there. And so I would go there and I felt like this doesn't feel right. And then some friends who I had known in college through another friend, they went to a different school. They were like, we kind of want to do stand up too. And there's this mic in Bushwick um, called Do Something. And it was one that uh, River Ramirez would host with, at the time, DJ Jeep Grand Cherokee. Um, who would kind of do like psychotic visuals and torture people during their sets sometimes. But it was like, you know, they were like, let's go to this mic. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, maybe this will be the mic where I try to just say the lines. And I remember like, I had a joke. I mean, I don't think it's a good joke, but it kind of embodies the like, that moment of like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I think this is my thing. Um, Was just kind of like marching in place for a sec. And then like, like sighing and saying that like, I hate going upstairs. It was something like that. And it's like, it, whatever. And people like really laughed. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can just like do this. And people get it. Um, and it's maybe not like a joke, but there's something funny about someone like just doing that. And people go, you know, they relate to it. Like, yeah, it's tiring to go upstairs. I mean, speaking of not um, not recognizing where you belonged or not recognizing the extent to which you were out of place as a, as a teenager and adolescent. I read that you realized you were queer, like as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, um, I mean, it's like funny now cause it seems so obvious even from like the youngest age, like photos of me, I'm like, dressed like a tomboy I, I mean I'm dressed in things that like queer people wear now I have like a little chain I'm like oh wow I really like you know when I was five it was so obvious but I think part of it was just kind of like the environment I grew up in was like very heteronormative and straight and like everyone at my school was like there were no openly gay people there was like maybe a couple of people in like the, the theater department that people were like I think he's gay but no one was like really open it, it was very like you know I don't know, not a place I think that sort of lent itself to that sort of like exploration. And so I just thought like, well, I'm not really that attracted to guys. Um, 
So, like, maybe I'm just asexual. It, like, didn't occur to me that, like, maybe I like non-cis males. Like, I don't know. And so then, like, yeah, in college I was similarly just, like, not dating, not interested, nothing. Very, like, sort of, uh, I think, like, so out of touch with that part of myself and not uh, open to the possibility that, like, maybe I wasn't straight. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Um, I... I was in college. I forget what year it was, but it was the year that Blue is the Warmest Color came out. And I felt like, huh, I want to see that movie. I don't know why, but I want to see it. And I go to the theater and I'm like so self-conscious going to the theater because I'm like, people are going to think I'm gay because I want to see this movie. And I was like by myself. I was like, oh, my God, like, I hope I, I don't see anyone at the theater. You know, I went to like the IFC Center downtown and in the middle of the movie, there's a problem with the projector and they have to stop the movie and the lights come up. And I feel like, oh, my God, now the whole theater is going to be looking at me and thinking that I'm gay because I'm here. And like it was such I mean, it, when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, my God, I was like had so much like sort of like deep internalized homophobia and was like terrified at the thought of like, what if I what if I am gay? And. And then seeing that movie, I was like, oh, my God, I relate to this. And I was like, no, 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 no. This can't be happening. This can't be me. No, it's not me. And then it still took me, like, a while to sort of, like, come to terms with it and, and, and like, be okay with it. And then once I did, I was like, oh, damn. Like, if I had done this a long time ago, I would have felt so much happier, I'm sure. You know? It's not like something that I, like— necessarily knew when was repressing I just like didn't know and then once I thought maybe it was that I still needed time to be like you know it's okay to like explore it and see if it is but yeah blue is the warmest color was (laughs) huge for me (laughs) I feel like Los Spookies is one of the queerest shows on television and I don't know exactly I mean there's gay characters on it but like I don't know exactly what besides that makes it the one of the queer shows on television. I, I think it's that like the the show is not trying to be anything or like trying to fit any sort of mold. It just sort of like is itself and it is what it is. And like, I don't know. I think like, especially like writing the second season, I feel like the show is so just okay with being itself and like, there's no agenda. There's no, like, sort of desire to teach the audience. It's just sort of like, no, this is just what, like, comes out of us. And we're, you know, Julio and I are both queer. And a lot of the actors on our sh- on the show that are friends of ours are queer. And it's just, so just, you know, it just is. But, it, but, it, but I think it's just because we're just being ourselves when we write it. When you, when you were writing Los Spookies... Um... Like the thought of you handing it in to the executive who's also in charge of, you know, um, the Sex and the City reboot and Hacks <laughs> and like none of those things being bad. Like I especially like Hacks, but, um, you know, just like to somebody who's in charge of regular television shows. Yeah. I mean, it's like I think that Julio and I didn't realize when we were making the first season how sort of unusual it was to be able to make this type of show like And, you know, we weren't involved in pitching or selling the show. Like, Fred had sold the pilot to HBO about, like, a group of horror makeup enthusiasts in Mexico City. That was, like, the original idea. 
And then once they ordered a script, he brought us on board to develop it. And then it became, you know, Los Spookies. Um, and so I think that, like, had Julio and I gone in and tried to pitch what the show ultimately became, I'm sure we would have gotten a lot of, like, what are you, what is this? Why? No. And so it feels almost like we were able to, like, Trojan horse the show, like, into the, like, you know, people's TVs just via, like, how we went about getting involved. But, like, yeah, I, I, I do feel really, like, fortunate. And, I mean, and especially, like, once I started to, like, pitch my own projects and I saw the way that people sort of react to or have a hard time, I think, feeling comfortable with ideas that maybe aren't as, like, linear as they're used to or as sort of, you know, conventional story structure that they're used to. Like, then I was like, oh, man, it feels like a miracle that we got this show made. Um, and, and I think it really, you know, HBO has been so supportive in letting us, you know, make it the way that we want to make it. And, um, and I feel very fortunate for that. I mean, right from the start, Los Spookies is a show about a group of, uh, like a crew, like a group of friends who work together as real life special effects artists, sort of. Yeah. It's like, it's like they like deceive people (laughs) they help people trick other people (laughs) and like when they're doing when they're like doing a a haunted house for an inheritance like uh you have to spend the night in this haunted house thing all of the all of the effects that they do involve like pulleys like visible pulleys and like dayglow paint (laughs) It's very, like, scrappy and DIY, like, um, you know, we wanted it to feel very, like, practical. Like, they're not doing, like, David Blaine-style optical illusions. It's like, no, you can see the rope and pulleys if you just look closely. But people buy it. But this is also a program where, like, I was just watching the first episode of season two, and it features heavily what it, what appears to be the ghost of a beauty contestant who's been impaled on an anchor. Yes. And she doesn't, she's not, doesn't come from pulley's world. No. So it's like a mix of like the things that they do, we want them to feel practical, but then in their world, it's just sort of like anything can kind of happen. And it is kind of like surreal and abstract and absurd. Um, but that the effects that they do are kind of like lame. Like even in the first episode of season two, when they do the ghosts, it's like, it looks like lame. It doesn't look cool and good. It looks just kind of like, oh, we see the ropes when you guys are going up, you know, but people buy it, which I think is really funny. One of the things that's special about Los Espookies to me is that Tati in particular, but several of the main characters of the show have such a warm positivity. And that isn't always a quality on a a comedy thing that's this odd or, or distinctive. It is something that you see a lot in in Fred Armisen's work, who originally created the show. And it's something that I feel from, you know, your online work that I've seen. But was that a choice to make a show about, that's theoretically about uh, dark goths, um, so wide-eyed and smiling? Um, I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily a conscious choice. I think that Julio and I are, like, optimistic people and, like, so the characters that we, you know, created for the show wound up being like that. And also it's like, you know, goth people are not just like 
frowning all the time. Like they laugh with their friends and they're, you know, have a full range of emotions. So we're like, okay, let's have their like ringleaders and then they'll be like really sweet and have like a little dog that he takes care of and like, you know, just things like that. Um, but But yeah, I do think that overall it's a very like happy and like upbeat show you know in a way that that i think is yeah nice <laughs> so the show was originally as you said going to be set in mexico city and one of the stars of the show bernardo velasco who plays Ronaldo, who's the like the the mastermind of this operation such as it is or at least he's the uh uh, he's the guy who keeps barreling forward at the very least. He's Mexican. How did you, and he feels very Mexican, like as a guy in LA from a Mexican American neighborhood in San Francisco, like he feels very Mexican. And he also like, as a straight guy, I just want to be his friend so desperately. Like, <laughs> just, he's just everyone's dream of, of what your dude friend would be um attitude wise so how did you uh how did you cast him so like when we were making the pilot and casting the pilot at this time the show was still going to be set in mexico so we were like okay julio and i are not mexican fred's not mexican we need our other like lead actors to be mexican and the director who did the first episode knew uh bernardo um because bernardo also works as a casting director and he he works a lot with like found actors he's very good at like yeah, if finding people that are not actors and training them for film and TV and stuff. And he's like a talented stage actor too. And so our director for the pilot was like, you know, we sh- like he should audition. And as soon as we saw his tape, we were like, oh my God, yes, it's him. Of course it's him. Um, and, and the same with um, Cassandra who plays Ursula. She's also um, Mexican. And similarly, like, yeah, once we saw her, we're like, oh yeah, it's got to be her. Um And then once the show was no longer set in Mexico, you know, and there was no sort of parameters on where they live or anything, then it was like, yeah, you guys can keep your accents. You can, you know, infuse uh, your dialogue with like Mexican slang if you want. Um, I mean, especially Bernardo's character uses a lot of of slang. But but yeah, it was like, I'm so happy that we sort of wound up picking from that uh, pool in Mexico because otherwise we wouldn't have have found uh, the two of them. Velasco has a, like a level of friendship charisma that is so extraordinary that it leads you to believe that all of these characters would be friends with each other. <laughs> and <laughs> that feels to me like the, the special trick of Los Espookies is, well, Julio Torres as a performer is so sui generis that you can hardly imagine him talking to anyone else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> Much less having a relationship with them because he's just so his own thing. And your character is such a doofus. And you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. so much going on there that you that you like need somebody that you could believe could bind any group of human beings together. Yeah. And I mean, and that's but not though in real life, he is so sweet and so kind and charming and just like everyone that that meets him is like oh in love because he's he's really like the best and same with Cassandra like when we got to know each other shooting the first season I thought like man we really lucked out like that we have these people that we're going to be working with a lot and that we really like and get along with 
who bring so much to to the characters and like I mean especially after we shot the first season I feel like Bernardo and Cassandra's characters became so much more clear to us and helped us write better stories for them in season two and yeah they're like as sort of um I mean Bernardo is is as like captivating and friendly and like lovable as his character what's something that you learned about his character from seeing him perform it the like he can be so like earnest and sweet in a way that i think i hadn't anticipated with the character like we knew like oh it's maybe it's kind of funny if he's like a little bit of like like a mama's boy or something like didn't fully like grow up still at home but then the way that he played it was like that, but not sort of making fun of it. It was like very sweet and like, um, yeah, I think just like he's so like, well, he has good intentions and is like always putting other people before himself. Um, and yeah, it made it then like, I mean, especially his storyline in season two is a lot about like the sort of pitfalls of putting other people before yourself. And I think we wouldn't have had that storyline had it not been for, you know, how he played him in season one. We've got more with Ana Fabrega still to come. Most of the dialogue on Los Espookies is in Spanish. And up until she started working on the show, Ana had only ever written jokes in English. So when she sat down to start writing for Los Espookies, what changes did she have to make? She'll tell me when we come back. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Parenting. It's hard, but don't worry. You're not alone. Belly up to the low bar with one bad mother and let us remind you that fine is good enough. They want to climb on different things. And how am I supposed to keep them both from dying? (laughs) There is a right way to do this. And if I can figure out that right way, I'm going to be a good parent. So that is not a thing. So join us each week and let us tell you that you are doing a good job. You can listen to One Bad Mother on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Anna Fabrega, star and co-creator of the Peabody Award-winning show Los Espookies. Had you written jokes in Spanish before you and Julio Torres started writing this show? No, I had never like done any work in Spanish before. And and the the scripts, we initially write them in English, knowing that they'll that certain dialogue will be said in Spanish and read in English. So there's that process of like, okay, we want it to look funny on screen for people that are reading it. Um and then, you know, in the back of our heads, we also know how it will be spoken in Spanish. And so we do all the English versions so that the network can read them and understand them, and then there's the the Spanish pass. Um and when I, like, take a stab at it, like, I always need to have Julio, whose Spanish is stronger than mine, like, you know, we'll we'll look at things together and be like, oh, actually, maybe it should be phrased like this or like that. Um, but, yeah, it's a funny kind of way of thinking because we, we know it'll be said in one language and read in another, and we want both of them to be funny. It's such an amazing thing about the show, which is probably, like, 85 90% in Spanish. There's some parts are in English, but... Um, substantially in Spanish with English subtitles on the screen that, you know, subtitled comedy almost never plays because you lose the, you lose the rhythm of the speech and you lose particularities of the language, all the jokes about puns and so on and so forth. And it plays so beautifully 
on, let's say, spookies. It is so funny reading the words. And so what what do you have to get right to make that work? Like, what is different about writing a joke and imagining it being read on a subtitle in front of someone speaking in a different language? Um, I mean, a lot of it, like, the subtitling process for the show is so meticulous because it's not just about, like, you know, we want to phrase this right, um, but we also want to make sure that the way the timing of when it appears on screen is is good, that if the text is broken up and we're going to see, like, the rest of the sentence on the next, like, screen or whatever, um, we want it to be broken up in a way where it's like, okay, the joke will be in in the second part and not the first part. And so, like, I don't know. It's just a matter of, like, tinkering and finding ways that, like, you know, make us laugh when we read it because that's how a lot, you know, a lot of the audience in the U.S. is going to be experiencing it. I mean, it also is such a comedy of images and ideas, you know, like it's full of jokes, but there are no, I don't know, 30 rock jokes that are a lot of funny words that end in K and uh, two deep cut cultural references. And it's like, here's an interesting idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Julio and I are not like, like very pun oriented writers, um, and so luckily, I mean, I think if we were, the show would, would not uh, work in two languages like this. Um, and yeah, I think we are more drawn to like ideas that make us laugh. And sometimes they're like very visual things where like reading it is not as important as seeing it. And sometimes it's about like, yeah, the thing that somebody says and making sure that like that looks funny reading. How do people talk to you about it differently who are watching it in Spanish, so to speak, uh, rather than watching it in English? I think that for people who are, like, bilingual, um, because most people, like, that grow up outside the U.S. will learn English in school. So I feel like a lot of, like, my family, at least in Panama, like, they all speak English. And so people, I think if you speak both languages, you'll get, like, certain little jokes, um, you know, will, will come across more in Spanish than in the text. Like, it's still like, funny one way or the other. But I think if someone's bilingual, they will pick up on, like, a little more things here and there that are, like, almost like an extra little joke that if you get it in Spanish um, and you can read it in English, like, it it just, like, pays off almost, like, a little bit better. Are there any things that you cut from the show because they were too weird? No. I mean, anything that's cut is because we don't have enough time for it. Like, um... We, we haven't ever really had anything come up like that in the writing process where HBO goes like, now, wait a minute, guys, this is too much. Like, they're very, like, hands off, like, make the show you want to make. And we're like, I don't feel limited in like, you know, oh, well, we can't write that because how are we ever going to do that? Like our production crew down there and, and our art um, production designer, Jorge Zambrano, and our wardrobe um, head, Muriel Parra, are, like, so talented and so funny, and they can, like, do anything. And so it's, like, very fun to write, sort of knowing, like, yeah, maybe I don't know exactly how we will shoot an eclipse, but Jorge will figure it out. And he does, you know? So it's, it's like, a very fun uh, and, and free sort of way to write. I was very scared that the show wasn't going to get a second season, uh, particularly when after the first season was announced, it it got shut down right at the very beginning because of COVID. I wonder if you kind of had your 
if there was any point in there where you had your life flash before your eyes, so to speak, where you were like, look, here I am with my friend. We both, we have two of the most uh, specific comedic sensibilities in all of comedy. Uh, we're making this show that is a really beautiful expression of both of them. We may never get this opportunity again. Well, so the the sh- after the first season came out uh, in the summer of 2019, we started writing the second season. And we wrote all of the second season in the fall of 2019. And then at the beginning of 2020, we go down to Santiago. We shoot almost four full episodes. And then the pandemic starts. So we leave with like two episodes and a handful of scenes left. And that that was kind of frustrating that like, oh, my gosh, we were so close to finishing. Uh, like if truly if we had stayed like three more weeks, we would have finished. And so then, you know, we come back here and it's just a waiting game. You know, at that time, everyone's like, oh, maybe in like a month it'll blow over. Obviously, that's not the case. And HBO kept telling us, like, don't worry, you're going to finish. Don't worry, you're going to finish. And so I did have some sort of peace of mind that, like, we will finish. I just didn't know when. And so after one year of waiting, like, because we were also dependent on what the COVID protocols in Chile were like. They were a lot more strict than they were here in the U.S. So, like, we couldn't go and shoot the way that people could, you know, shoot after just a couple months in the States. And so, yeah, we were just like, all right, well, I guess we'll we'll hope that cases and things are, like, under control in Chile and that they let, you know, open the border and that we can go back and, and finish up. And so... Yeah, once we hit the, like, two-year mark and we got the green light that, like, everything is, like, you know, because there were times where we thought, like, okay, now we'll be able to go and we would start planning and then they would roll back their reopening because cases rose. And then it was like, okay, I guess we're we're waiting again. So, yeah, it wasn't like, I didn't think, like, man, what if we never finish? I just thought, like, what if it's a really long time before we finish? Because I think HBO was like, you know, it's just two more episodes. So just go finish it. But yeah, I mean, I know that there there were other productions that were just kind of like, that's it, you're done. Sorry if you didn't finish. Um, so I am very grateful that we were able to finish what we started. It it, it felt like it was maybe going to be never ending. In a broader sense, did you ever have that feeling? Like leaving aside whether you were going to finish the second season, were you? Have you had the feeling like how could I how could I ever get to do something like this again? Yeah, I mean, I like. There is, I didn't realize how sort of unique the opportunity was that we had. I just kind of thought like, oh yeah, then I got to do a TV show. Cool. Like I didn't realize that like, until I started to pitch other projects that people are going to go like, wait, what? Why is it, why is that happening? You know? And, and it really feels like such a gift to have this show where we can really like write whatever we want and, you know, have the trust from from the network in us to like make the show that we want to make. But yeah, I mean, I have times where I'm like, man, is anyone ever going to buy anything else from me? Because everyone thinks it's too niche. You know, that's what my, my main sort of thing is like, it's too niche. And I'm like, yeah, but um, I wish I was more broad, but I'm not. So like, you know, it's going to be niche the way Los Spookies is niche, but it finds its, it finds its audience. Uh, I'm looking at my imaginary list of questions I was going to ask you, and there's only one left. It says, uh, will Tati be my friend and can we hold hands? Uh, yeah, Tati will be friends. Although I think Tati is the type of person that if you hold her hand, she's going to think it's romantic. I mean, I, I watched the show with my wife, so I think she would understand. Yeah. <laughs> In Tati's head, any sort of physical contact with a man is romantic. <laughs> 
that's how Dati moves through the world. It's like, yeah, it's she's um, she's not someone to do to like flirt with if you're not ready to to jump into something serious. Well, Anna Fabrega, I'm I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show. I just couldn't be a bigger fan of Los Spookies and and of your work. I'm so happy I got to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's so nice talking with you. And and yeah, thank you for having me. My conversation with Anna Fabrega from last year. Her show, Los Espookies, just won a Peabody and they deserved their Peabody. If you haven't had a chance to watch Los Espookies, please do. It is so great. You can stream both seasons on Max. And hey, maybe Max will reconsider and make some more. That happens sometimes. It's basically all I want in the world. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although, this week we went to Ann Margaret's house uh, to interview her. So look forward to our interview recorded live on tape from Ann Margaret's house coming up in a couple of weeks. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow here at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye can be found on all of your favorite platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Follow us there. Share our interviews. If you liked one of the interviews today, please share it with a friend. It makes a big difference for us. Tell somebody you like the show. Don't keep it secret. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.